0: Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Today we're going to continue in our summer teaching series titled Bold, Bold, the Miraculous Book of Acts, and I want to encourage you and invite you. If you haven't already been doing so, to follow along with us with our summer reading plan, Uh, you'll find it on the screen at the end of the service. You can also find it on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Uh, Everything has been posted there to make it easy for you to follow along. We're doing four chapters per week. Because of that, uh, we're moving quickly through each chapter, and we're highlighting a nugget or two out of each chapter and out of each passage to cover on Sundays, but you can't get it all on Sunday morning. So I want to encourage you to make sure that you're reading along with us um, each and every week. It's been a lot of fun. I also encourage you to read from the New Living Translation. Uh, To me, it just does such a good job of telling the story of the book of Acts, but it also does it in a way that's very accurate and holds true to the original text, which is very important. So uh, that having been said, let me jump into... Uh, this kind of synopsis that we've been doing at the beginning of each Sunday morning. We're covering uh, chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 this week. Let me just start by reading this to you. Chapter 9 of Acts opens by continuing the timeline of Saul, who we met in the previous chapter. For roughly the previous three years since the death of Stephen... Saul has been persecuting the church, killing Christians, or placing them in prison. As a result, I, I can't wait to meet Ananias. I'm excited to lead him in a prayer to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. With Saul to receive the Holy Spirit as this of Paul's conversion, but it's Barnabas Everybody say amen, Italian. Italian man named Cornelius, he was in the mafia, who has been faithfully praying to God and giving offerings. Peter sees a vision of a large number of animals, many of them considered unclean. And God speaks to him, telling him to kill one of the unclean animals and eat it. Peter refuses and tells God, tells him not to, excuse me, Peter, not to consider anything unclean, which God himself has churched in Acts chapter 2, Peter finally understands that the gospel is for everyone and not only the Jews. He goes into Cornelius' house, preaches to them, and prays for them. They all receive Christ and are boldly filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak with other tongues. After a few days spent in the home of Cornelius, Peter returns back to Jerusalem and is confronted by the other apostles. They are concerned because he has spent time in the home of a non-Jew, a Gentile, which is forbidden in Jewish law. Peter recounts for them his vision of the animals and the message which God spoke to Peter through it. He tells them what took place in Cornelius' home and of how God moved mightily upon these Gentiles. Meanwhile, the gospel is still thriving and expanding into other cities. Jesus prophesied that it would. Saul has now traveled back to his hometown of Tarsus in the modern-day nation of Turkey, and he is preaching there. Barnabas, who we just met a couple chapters ago, journeys to Tarsus to find Paul, and they both now travel to Antioch, which is also in Turkey. They spend a full year there preaching to large crowds of people about Christ Jesus. By the way, that's just my little stab at people who don't like organized religion and say that we shouldn't preach to large groups of people. They did it in the book of Acts. Kiss my butt. <laughs> in Jesus' name. <clears throat> They spent a full year there preaching to large crowds of people about Christ Jesus. I don't want anybody to kiss my butt. It's in Antioch that people are first called Christians, which is the, in that language of that day means a person who is identified as belonging to Christ. Chapter 12 leads us back to Jerusalem and we see James, one of the apostles, martyred for his belief in Jesus by King Herod Agrippa. During this time... Peter is also thrown in jail for the third time in the book of Acts. Guarded by multiple sentries and physically chained to two soldiers, Peter is visited by an angel and led safely out of prison. After realizing that he is actually free and his experience wasn't a vision, Peter returns to the church who are praying continuous to continuously for him at Mary's home. However, when Peter returns, the church does not believe that it's him. A servant girl who has spoken to him through the door uh, it convinced the church that it is indeed Peter, and they finally led him into the place where they were gathered. Meanwhile, his miraculous escape prompts confusion for Herod and for the guards that were stationed to guard Peter. Herod then dressed himself in his royal robes after returning to Capernaum and addressed the people. They responded with shouts heralding King Herod as a god rather than as a man. Instantly, Herod is struck by the angel of the Lord for receiving the praise of men rather than deferring praise to God. He is consumed by worms and dies. Ouch. Meanwhile, Barnabas and Saul return from their ministry to Jerusalem. Pretty wild four chapters, isn't it? I'm just glad that whenever I've rebelled against God, I didn't get struck by an angel and eaten by worms. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I want to take a few different um, statements as we've been doing from each chapter so let's back up to chapter 9 this is an absolutely profound passage seeing the conversion of Saul who would later in chapter 13 become known as Paul chapter 13 is one of my favorites actually I can't wait for next week but as I said in the, in the little synopsis, Paul is there journeying by foot to the city of Damascus in an attempt to silence the gospel that's gone forth. Paul's been doing this now for several years. Again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the timeline sometimes because we can read the book of Acts in about 45 minutes. But this spans like 30 some odd years. So it's been about three years since Stephen was stoned and and Saul at that time was the one who was kind of heading up the revolt against the church when Stephen was stoned. And then after Stephen was stoned, it really supercharged Paul and said, oh, we can actually kill these people. Let's do it. And so he really starts hunting after the church and has been doing that for about three years. He's now on his way to Damascus traveling with a group of goons and they're going to go, they got these papers and they're going to go find Christians and kill them. Or at the very least, they're going to put him in jail. And, And it's just an amazing thing to me to read this passage because, again, Jesus is appearing to somebody after his resurrection. It's proof positive to me that Jesus can do whatever he wants to do, even if it doesn't fit what it makes me comfortable. If Jesus wants to appear to me in my bedroom, I'll take it. Amen. Now that's never happened to me personally, but I know of people that it has happened to. And you know what? That's great. Glory to God. Doesn't mess with my theology at all because it happened right here in the book of Acts a number of times. It also happened in some other books in the New Testament. But Paul is traveling on this road, heart filled with rebellion, absolutely diametrically opposed to Christianity. He hates Christianity. He hates Christians. He thinks they're all blasphemers. He is filled with the spirit of religion and he is bound and determined to wipe everybody out. And all it takes is one encounter with Jesus to turn the most hardened heart into the most ardent supporter of the gospel. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've seen it in the lives of people that I know, people whose hearts were completely hardened to God that all of a sudden turned around and said, whoa, yes, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, become the most vocal voice, the loudest of all those evangelists in the crowd who are trying to point people to Jesus. Don't tell me that an encounter with Jesus can't change somebody. Amen. So here he is walking, and I love the way it reads in the, in the original King James Bible. says he sees a light that shines brighter than the noonday sun. It's just very poetic language. And from this light he sees Jesus, and Jesus utters this statement, which comes from verse 4 of Acts chapter 9. It says he fell to the ground, and he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? It's a very important question in the life of Saul, and I'm going to explain why. This statement that Paul receives, or this question that Paul receives from the Lord Jesus, Paul, or excuse me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want to submit to you this morning that all of Paul's revelation that he spends, all these epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. All these doctrinal epistles that he writes in the New Testament are his way of expressing the revelation he received in that single question. I believe that with all my heart. That all it took from Jesus was one question. And that was enough to give Saul all the revelation he would ever need that he spent time fleshing out over the next decades. Here's why I believe that that's true. It's because Jesus identifies himself and his church as a single entity. Jesus does not ask Saul, 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 why are you persecuting the Christians in Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my bride? Why are you persecuting the people in Jerusalem? Don't you know Peter's a nice guy? Why are you picking on Peter? He doesn't say any of that. He says, why are you persecuting me? In that statement alone, I believe, was deposited into Paul, the immediate understanding that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. He is the son of God speaking on behalf of the father and everybody that is born again in his name becomes part of him and of his body. And now Paul recognizes this Jesus that I'm persecuting is actually one and the same with the people that I'm persecuting. There is this amazing, mysterious union that the gospel creates between the body of Christ and Christ himself. That's why he goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. I believe that Paul got everything out of that one question and spent the rest of his life trying to explain it to people. Go read Romans. Go read, go read the epistles. you'll find it over and over and over again. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You've been brought into the family of God, into this mysterious union with Christ Jesus. Jesus takes it very personally when it comes to His church, His bride, his body. Now I'm in no way suggesting that you are Jesus or that you are God that's real dumb, everybody say that's dumb, not suggesting that you are God, but I am suggesting that you have been made one with him, the best way for me to explain this is to use the old vinaigrette example, how many of you have like balsamic vinaigrette in your fridge, you know it's, it's there with all the other dressings from 1987 that still managed to be in the door of your fridge, or maybe that's just mine, and there it is, the balsamic's there, and it's just separated. The vinegar and the toppings, are, or excuse me, the vinegar and the spices are at the bottom, and the, the oil is separated, and it's on the top. And if you want to use that on your salad dressing, you have to shake it up till it all becomes one homogenous thing, and then it becomes useful. You see, your life and my life in Christ is not useful until it becomes homogenous, that you and I can't tell where we stop and God starts it's this union with Jesus that Paul understands in this one question. It's part of the mystery of the gospel that we've been joined to Christ. No wonder the early disciples weren't afraid of the impossible. Think about that for a second. It's no wonder the disciples, the apostles, the early church, they weren't afraid of the impossible. Why? Why? Because they really actually believed they were one with Christ. They really actually believed that that when I got saved, God did something on the inside of me that forever changed everything about who I am. I'm not who I used to be. I'm one with him. You see, if you understand that you've been joined to Christ, you'll pray different. You'll think different. You'll act different. You won't be afraid When the enemy comes knocking on your door, trying to frustrate you and trying to get on your kids and trying to attack your marriage and trying to, you know, get all up in your business. You won't be afraid because you've been joined to Christ. Now moving on, we go to Acts chapter 10. Boy, I wish I could just stay there for the rest of the day, I really do. But we got somewhere to go. And there's fireworks for later too, so I can't preach for six hours. Although I'd like to believe that y'all would stick around, but who knows. Acts chapter 10. Our key statement from chapter 10 here is found in verse 38. This is, one, this is probably, I was telling uh, Eric this earlier this week, this is probably my favorite verse in the whole of the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for the Lord was with him. Amen. You see, Peter is in Cornelius' house at this point. Some more time's gone by. He's finally understood that the gospel's for everybody. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. And Peter, when he stands up to preach about this Jesus that's been made available to everyone, he makes this statement. He tells them about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. It's interesting to me that even the Son of God himself needed to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Let that just kick over a sacred cow and mess with your theology for about 30 seconds, okay? God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. That tweaks my mind out. I mean, he's the son of God. What does he need anything else for? He came, he laid aside his royal dignity, and he came in the likeness of human flesh, the Bible says. He, became and be- he came and became one of us. And the scripture is really clear that once he became like one of us, God put his anointing on Jesus. So, if Jesus, the point I'm trying to make is that if Jesus needed to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, guess who else needs to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power? Every time you look in the mirror, you look at him, right? Every time you go to brush your teeth and you're staring at yourself in the mirror, you can just think, I need to be anointed. If Jesus needed to be anointed, then the person I'm looking at right now needs to be anointed too. I think of John G. Lake, one of the the turn-of-the-century evangelists who made such an impact in the continent of Africa, specifically the nation of South Africa, and birthed things in that continent that forever changed the entire continent of Africa. When he was looking at the mirror in the morning, he used to say to himself, God lives in that man. What a declaration. What a way to start your day. I'm all for positive affirmations. What's even better is powerful revelations. Amen. I mean, positive affirmations are good, powerful revelations are better. God lives in that man. God lives in that woman. Woman, you see, if you could wrap your heart around that every day, you'd think different. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. What did he do? He went about doing good. You don't ever see Jesus doing bad. Right, You don't ever see Jesus when somebody comes to him for healing. Lord, could you please heal my son? Lord, could you please heal my wife? Could you please raise this person from the dead? Could you heal my leprosy? Could you heal my blindness? Lord, I need you. Son of David, have mercy on me. When you see people come to Jesus, they're destitute. They're absolutely at the end of their rope. And all they need is a touch from Jesus. And they don't know who else to call. They don't know where else to go. So they go and find Jesus. And when they come to him, you never once see Jesus go, Mm, um, you know, I think that the that 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 the Father's trying to teach you something with this blindness. Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to I want to encourage you to hold on to God's unchanging hand, brother, sister, leper. I know you're going to die in about two weeks, but here's what I want you to do: just hold on to heaven. Jesus never resisted anybody who came to him with a need, not one time. Why do we assume that when we pray, God is going to resist our prayer? Why? God, Jesus, it says of God here that he anointed Jesus with what? The Holy Spirit and with power so that he could do two things, do good and heal all who were oppressed of the devil. This is clearly helping us understand, this verse clearly helps us understand that it's God who is the author of good and the devil who is the author of oppression. There's a lot of conversation in our society right now about oppression. We hear the word oppression thrown around oftentimes in our discussions. Let me tell you so that you don't ever forget, yes, people absolutely oppress others, but let me tell you what the root of it is. Can I tell you? The enemy is the oppressor. He inspires people to oppress others, and that is terrible, and it's an injustice. But let me tell you, it's the enemy who's the oppressor. If you can deal with the devil, you won't have the problem. Amen. If you can deal with the, listen, if you've ever dealt with cutting a tree down, you know that if you, know, if you, if you just cut a few branches off the tree, it's still going to grow. You got to go to the root. Anybody ever pulled a weed before, and you pulled it up, and you just pulled the the flower off the dandelion, but there's a little bit of stem still sticking out of the ground? That dandelion will be back in four days, right? You got to go to the root of the issue. The enemy is at the root of the issue. God is the author of good. The enemy is the author of confusion, oppression, fear, strife, disease. Let's never blame God when the enemy is at work in our life or anybody else's life. The Bible says our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and mights and dominions. That's the enemy and his camp. Amen? Now, moving on, because I've got less than 10 minutes to cover two chapters. I believe in end-time miracles, don't you? Acts chapter 11. Peter now takes this whole story from Cornelius' house and he goes back to Jerusalem and as I was saying, the, 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 the church, the apostles, the folks, the leaders that were there, they're all ticked at Peter. Like, Pete, bro, how many times we gotta go over this? You stayed at a Gentile's house, man. It, 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 was, it would be the equivalent of me when I was in high school staying at my girlfriend's house. Right? My father would meet me at the door. Okay, what were you thinking staying at a Gentile's house? And Peter's response comes from verse 17 of chapter 11, and I love this. Verse 11, excuse me, uh, verse 17 of chapter 11. It says, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the lord jesus christ who was i that i could withstand god i like it in the i kind of tucked into it in the greek a little bit the greek for standing in god's way it's actually just one word and here's the idea The idea in this word that's presented is to forbid something in order to correct it. Let me give you an example. If Sophia came to me and wanted Oreo number 14, I would forbid her to in order to correct the problem because a four-year-old, especially one that weighs like eight pounds, doesn't need 14 Oreos. 14 Oreos. In our house, we stop at a dozen. (laughs) I'm real, real stickler about that. But here's the idea Peter's going, Why in the world would I try to withstand in order to correct the God of the universe? And here's the reality, guys we do this all the time. Anybody ever thought they knew more than God? Anybody ever have God give you understanding and you throw it back up to God and go, here, Lord, I I agree with you, but let me tell it to you from my point of view. Let me explain where I'm at. As though it's a dialogue and a counseling session where we get to counsel each other. Who am I to tell the God of the universe that's not the way it should be done? Lord, here's the deal. Okay, here's the deal. I know that Jesus died on the cross for everybody, but God, okay, we're special. We deserve this gospel. All them other heathens out there don't deserve the gospel. And God's like, yeah, that's the point, bozo. <laughs> Nobody deserves the gospel. Nobody deserves repentance. Nobody deserves the washing of the sins. Nobody deserves to have a new nature, that's why Jesus died for everybody that didn't deserve it. Glory to God. Amen. Thank you. This, this happens to us. It could be with direction. It could be with us trying to exert too much control. There's, there's so many times in my life when I've tried to throw it back in God's court and go like, I'm not real comfortable with that advice, Lord, so I'm going to throw it back to you and try to prevent this from going any forward in an effort to correct your misinformation, Lord. God's not that dumb. Amen. Specifically in this passage, this idea has to do with who gets to receive Jesus and who doesn't get to receive Jesus. Can I submit to you this morning that it's our job to preach the gospel to everybody. And it's only the most most religious amongst us who get uncomfortable with preaching the gospel to people that they don't deem fit. Selah. You want to know how you can root out religion out of your own heart? Is Ask yourself the question, who am I willing to minister the gospel to? And if there's a line that you've drawn in the sand, recognize God wants to change that line. Recognize that you are not above anybody else in this world. You don't deserve Jesus, neither do I. Praise God I've received him. And praise God there's people out there that need to receive him too. We are not going to draw the line around us four and no more in the holiness club and say other people don't get to be involved in the goodies from heaven that we get to have it doesn't work that way and it took them 10 years to figure it out Acts chapter 2 is 10 years ago I mean in the story some of you will get that later <laughs> for Peter Acts chapter 2 the, the, the birth of the church the day of Pentecost the big sermon where 3,000 people get saved Peter's still riding high on that emotion 10 years later and God's like bro I told y'all to leave Jerusalem. I told y'all to preach to more than just the Jews in the temple. Y'all get out of the temple and go into the highways and hedges, as Jesus said, and compel them to come. The kingdom of God is like a feast, and the master of the feast says, Go out everywhere and tell everybody and bring everybody in, because redemption knows no barrier. Hallelujah. This is one of those proof texts, by the way, for any nerdy Bible people in here. This is one of those proof texts in Scripture which prevents me from ever being a pure Calvinist. I'm just gonna leave that there for anybody that wants to think about it later. Acts chapter 12, let's wind this thing down. Acts chapter 12, Peter goes to jail again for preaching the gospel. This is three times in 10 years. You know, at at some point... In modern day situations, if I knew that a preacher went to jail three times, I'd be like, I don't have anything to do with that guy. Dude's been in jail thrice in a decade. But he went to jail not because he embezzled money, but because he was caught preaching the gospel again. And this is amazing to me. It amazes me that every single time that Peter was put in prison, God supernaturally got him out. Everybody that goes into prison in the book of Acts gets out. Supernaturally. God doesn't wait for their appeal to come back up to the judge five years later and say, we need to revisit this case. No, God sends an angel, goes into the jail cell, and says, come on, Pete, let's go. And Peter, the, the, the cool thing about this, this particular one versus the other two times he was in, scripture, in, in jail is he's actually this time physically chained to two guards. The- <laughs> The religious leaders have learned. They're like, we put this dude in jail two other times, and he keeps getting out. Y'all need to check him for shovels on the way in. He keeps getting out. I don't know if he's picking locks or what. They're like, we know what to do. Get those same two guards that were at the tomb the day Jesus rose and tie them to Peter. They've seen some escapes before. Let's, let's get the experienced team. They, tie, they chain Peter. And the angel shows up in the middle of the night and says, Pete, come on, let's go. Has to wake him up. This is an interesting point. Most of us, if we were in prison, would be so worried, so terrified, so frustrated, so anxious, worrying and wondering, Lord, did we do something wrong? Why did I get into the position I'm in? And Peter, like Jesus, when he slept in the boat, Peter is asleep in prison. So asleep, that an angel has to really wake him up. And he gets up and he leaves. The verse that I want to highlight is verse 11. It says, when Peter had come to himself... Oh, that's the wrong passage. Yes, no, here, no, I was right. When Peter had come to himself, verse 11... Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod from all the expectation of the Jewish people. The key phrase here is the Lord had sent his angel and saved me. This tells me that God knows how to take care of those who are doing what he has called them to do. The thing I want to encourage us with this morning is to live every single day with the expectation of supernatural intervention. Peter, never for a moment that we read in the text, I'm sure he had moments of doubt, I'm sure he had moments of fear, but in the text what we read is a guy who was so emboldened by his union with Christ that he didn't go a day without expecting supernatural provision, he didn't go any time. I mean, he's in prison sleeping. He's in prison and he's he's out cold, not worried. How many of us get into a sticky situation and immediately the worry, the worry wart, starts going, wringing our hands. I don't know how I'm going to make it out. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. I don't know. How, I, mean, I don't know. I know God's done it for me a ton of times. I don't know how He's going to do it this time. <laughs> As though God needs our permission to pass His plan along to us and say, "Is this okay if I free you out of the you, Peter? Is this all right if I get you out of the jail?" God never sent an angel to consult with Peter. He sent an angel to rescue Peter when are you and I going to ever get to the place where we stop bringing our hands and start trusting Jesus and say, you know what? I'm not going to go a day of my life without the expectation of supernatural divine intervention in every situation. And here, listen to this. It doesn't have to be a problem. It doesn't have to be a problem that you get in, you know, inspiration from the Spirit of God. It doesn't have to be a prison moment. It could be on a sales call. Amen, right? It could be, it could be, I mean, let's just bring it down to where we live for a second. It could be on a project. It could be in a, in a conflict with your spouse. It could be when you're trying to parent and you don't know exactly what to say in that moment. We should never live a day without the expectation of divine influence. You know what that is, guys? That's Grace. That's what grace looks like. It's God giving you something you don't deserve in the moment that you need it, and it doesn't have to be catastrophic. I mean, if it's prison, He'll send an angel. I believe it. We got proof text in the Bible for it. If it's deli- if it's Him delivering you out of a situation that looks really really bad, He'll do it. That's why we sing that song that He's a waymaker. A miracle worker, a promise keeper, light in the darkness. That's who you are. What is that? That's the attitude of somebody who expects God to meet them every single day. My friend Jim Hockaday likes to say this. He says, You ought to wake up every single morning the same way your kids wake up on Christmas, saying, God, what's in the box today? What am I going to unwrap from you today? What grace have you made available for me today? Oh, Lord, what is it? Yesterday was amazing. I had a good time unwrapping the bow yesterday. What do we got today? Expect. Expect God to intervene by grace in your life every day. Amen. Can you stand up to your feet this morning? We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.